Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Mod Path Chat the official podcast of Modern Pathology, featuring interviews with authors and experts on the latest science, technology, and developments in the field of pathology. Your host, Dr. George Netto, is the editor-in-chief of Modern Pathology and the chair of pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Here's Dr. Netto. Welcome to today's special episode of ModPass Chat. In the second installment of our four-part series covering this year's USCAP long course on lung diseases, I'm honored to be joined by two distinguished faculty, Dr. Andrew Churg and Dr. Maxwell Smith. Dr. Churg is a professor of pathology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Professor Churg is an icon in the field of interstitial lung diseases and has made a tremendous contribution to the advancement of our understanding of many of the entities uh, in this organ. Dr. Smith is a professor of lab medicine and pathology and the chair of anatomic pathology division at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Dr. Smith is an international expert in medical lung, renal, hepatic pathology, among others. Uh, we were joking uh, when he doesn't have anything else to do, he does a little GU path, which for some of us is, uh, is plenty. So I congratulate you on your multi-talented uh, career. Thank you both for accepting uh, our invitation. It's really an honor to have you. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. This should yes. be fun. Thank you very much, George. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here with you today. I really appreciate it. I, uh, as, as I mentioned, uh, this is uh, we're trying to cover, of course, in 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, uh, it's uh, too brief, but the idea is just a teaser to uh, let our audience go back and listen uh, to the on-demand lectures that are still available uh, for a while uh, of the long course. And uh, more importantly, as uh, as uh, the audience uh, should know that uh, these lectures will transform into uh, manuscripts that will uh, be published in a special uh, supplement for uh, our journal. So uh, at this point, uh, just a teaser, and then uh, the rest can be read in those articles and the lectures. So let's start uh, with you, Dr. Turg, and if you can give, give us just uh, very briefly what what should some general pathologists like me know about uh, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, which was uh, the topic of your lecture that, that can help me not get in trouble? 
Well, hypersensitivity pneumonitis has become the problem child of interstitial lung disease. And interstitial lung disease is a difficult area to start with. What has happened, and Max, I think, will talk about this, is we see fewer and fewer biopsies of UIP. Then we see biopsies of all sorts of other things, some of which are what is now called fibrotic HP, used to be called chronic HP. The problem is nobody clinically can agree on what this disease looks like. And there's, there's a, a very nice article in which a whole set of multidisciplinary discussion groups reviewed 70 cases and their agreement on fibrotic HP was really, really terrible. So this has evoked a lot of interest in the field. There are now two guidelines, which are basically clinical guidelines, one from the American Thoracic Society, one from the American College of Chest Physicians, setting out notional rules for diagnosing hypersensitivity pneumonitis, which incidentally is going to be called either non-fibrotic or fibrotic. and gets away from the previous timeline definitions that nobody agreed on either. The issue, well, non-fibrotic, let me just say non-fibrotic HP is sort of the classic one and as a rule is pretty easy to diagnose, provided of course you've got imaging and you've got clinical information. And I should say that if you want to do interstitial lung disease without clinical and radiologic information, you're going to get it wrong. Asking for trouble. But fibrotic HP is still a problem. And from the point of view for pathologists, what are the rules? Well, in the lecture that I gave for, for the long course and in the article that I'm going to publish with, with uh, modern pathology, I've set out some rules and there's not wonderful agreement on the rules. If you see a fibrosing interstitial pneumonia with granulomas, well, yeah, you should think about fibrotic HP. It's not 100% specific, but at least it's suggestive. The problem is that fibrotic HP can mimic other forms of interstitial lung disease. It can look like fibrotic NSIP. It can look like disease that is really purely peribronchialer, which at least is pretty suggestive of fibrotic HP. Or... It can look like UIP, and that's what drives all of us nuts. And then there are fights in the literature. You know, what are the exact rules that move something from UIP, meaning IPF, into fibrotic HP? People talk about peribronchialar disease, and we've promulgated the idea that extensive peribronchialar metaplasia points you toward fibrotic HP. Granulomas in giant cells point you, but they also have a differential, including connective tissue disease, including microaspiration. So it is not a simple problem. It is something of a work in progress where we're trying to get to some consensus on the rules. But what I've tried to lay out in my lecture and in the forthcoming article is what I think the state of the art is at this minute. I look forward uh, to reading that. I've, I've listened to the lecture, really enjoyed it. And, and in that lecture, you mentioned and, and you touched upon here that, that overlap, at least with the morphology between the fibrotic and, and UIP. And, and that's probably a good segue to, to move to Max, uh, Dr. Smith, and, and say, can you also give us uh, what are uh, 
the highlights of of how we should uh, diagnose UIP IFP at this point, uh, and uh, whether etiology matter or can we even discern that or any of these issues. Absolutely, yeah, and and that is a great segue. And I think the the topic actually that I was given by the the uh, course organizers uh, kind of highlights where we are with regard to UIP in the setting of pathology. So the topic they gave me was the diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis slash usual interstitial pneumonia, right? And so we know as pathologists that or um, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is not the diagnosis we make. It's the diagnosis that's made at a multidisciplinary uh, conference or by the clinician in the setting of radiology that shows UIP or pathology that shows UIP. But I think in the past decade, we're seeing this shift from pathologists who are just looking in the microscope saying, this is UIP, this is UIP, this is UIP, to uh, what Andy is talking about, where are there other features on this biopsy where we can actually start to tease out the etiology, i.e., is there inflammatory cell infiltrates that might suggest connective tissue disease as an etiology for this advanced fibrosing process? Um, Or are there granulomas and more subtle uh, lymphocytic inflammatory cell infiltrates that might I'd suggest hypersensitivity pneumonitis as, as an etiology. And so over the past decade, there's been um, multiple publications that are, uh, like Andy mentioned, the HP guidelines, um, but we have uh, guidelines for the diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And those guidelines uh, give radiologic criteria, and they also give pathologic criteria. And we have found in, in our consult practice that those guidelines have generated more confusion, I think, than, uh, than, than answers. And I, Andy's shaking his head uh, yes and, uh, up, up and down as a yes, um, because pathologists have a hard time um, uh, implementing those guidelines within their practice. And so uh, in, in the course I gave, I tried to give some examples of, of how, how you might use those guidelines. Uh, not everybody does use those, uh, use those guidelines lines, but um, I gave some examples of cases that many people might look at and initially say, oh, this is UIP, which Mm -hmm. would start this cascade of clinicians diagnosing IPF and patients being treated as idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, when in reality, there are histologic features that would suggest um, this is not idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and this is a well-defined either connective tissue disease associated ILD or, or chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Very well said. So, which is really, uh, at the end, you know, uh, it's it's really what matters is we, we do not want to do harm. While, while it's great for us to be very accurate as, as general pathologists, and uh, probably most of the time we're going to need experts like yourselves, but uh, at least do no harm. So what are the things we should afford? It does, it does matter, right? It does matter in terms of treatment, in terms of prognostication. So I'll let each one of you uh, comment on that. And what are the exact distinctions that you do not want to uh, make a mistake and calling one thing versus the other. For example, the fibrotic uh, HP versus UIP doesn't matter in terms of what the clinicians are going to do. Well, it matters at the minute. And the reason it matters at the minute is a treatment, the, the official recommended treatment for fibrotic HP is an immunosuppressive agent. Uh, sometimes steroids, more typically mycophenolate or azathioprine. The problem is if you do that with IPF, in fact, you get a worse outcome. So immunosuppression is contraindicated in IPF, and that makes a major distinction that we want to follow as much as possible. It's that, that distinction is going to disappear because it's becoming very clear that anything that falls in the category of what's called progressive fibrosing interstitial pneumonias is going to be treated with an antifibrotic agent, currently approved only for uh, IPF but basically very soon to be approved for anything that's fibrosing. Now, the one thing about that is I don't, the temptation of course is pathologists to say, great, I don't care, you know, it's fibrosing, go treat it, I don't care. It's not that simple because even with that, you'd like to try and find what the antigen is for fibrotic HP. There are some cases that actually stop if you get the patient away from the antigen. And in fact, there's some interesting data from Japan from people who had fibrotic HP from birds showing that if you went to their houses and you vacuumed up dust and assayed the amount of bird antigen, the more residual bird antigen there was present, the worse the disease. So it's actually still important to try and find an antigen. And therefore you really do wanna be able to say, I favor fibrotic HP and not just say, well, it's fibrosing interstitial pneumonia. I don't care. And my yeah. understanding is the etiology is not always that agent. Most of the time is, is hard to, to pin down, right? Absolutely. In many cases, you simply, even with a real careful history, cannot find the agent. But 
there, there is a belief in some quarters that if you find the agent and you get the patient away from the agent, they do better. That's controversial, but I think there are at least occasional cases to support that. And uh, Dr. Smith, from, from your, your side, in terms of knowing more, what was the pre-existing pathway etiology that led to, to the fibrotic process? Sure. I, I mean, I think it's, I think about this in two ways. I think about it. One is the case that you have coming across your desk and, and what you need to do with that case coming across your desk. But then also taking a step back and remember that, you know, we are pathologists and we are the ones who study disease. And if, if, if we're the group who says that's fine, you have one treatment that's not an outstanding treatment. Um, but if we're the group that says that's fine, you have that treatment and we don't need to worry about pathophysiology, pathobiology anymore, then I think we're making a mistake long term because I think our future patients deserve for us to continue to be interested in what is driving this pathologic disease process. Um, and, and I think it's, it's interesting. I have this varied background. And so I do liver pathology, non-neoplastic. I do renal pathology, non-neoplastic. And we have these terms like cirrhosis, which is advanced fibrotic liver disease. And we have these terms like advanced interstitial fibrosis and tubular atrophy, advanced um, in-stage disease within the kidney. Um, but we don't, those don't represent a clinical pathologic diagnosis within hepatology and within nephrology, like this, this term UIP does. Instead, they represent sort of a, a stage which has prognosis, right? In-stage lung has a poor prognosis, just like in-stage liver, just like in-stage kidney. Um, but we have biopsies in the medical uh, field, in the non-neoplastic field, we have biopsies of liver that are asking what's the etiology of this cirrhosis? They already know we have cirrhosis. What's the etiology? What's the etiology of this advanced IFTA within this kidney? Um, that's why they're, they're doing the biopsies. And so I, I think the, the uh, pulmonary uh, pathology field can, can take a note from that and, and, and continue to look what's the etiology of these advanced fibrosing processes. In some cases, as Andy knows, and as, as every pulmonary pathologist, anybody who's ever looked at these cases knows that some cases are insoluble um, and, and clinical pathologic correlation is, is exceedingly important. Um, but I do feel that it is very important for pathologists to continue to be interested in, uh, in etiology and pathophysiology. I, I think that's a, that's a very important point because no progress will be made if we don't try to uh, to dissect out these pathophysiologic and and absolutely uh, which uh, which brings us to uh, anytime we talk about pathophysiology and etiology and how can we impact it uh, knowing precisely more uh, the, the etiology has has precision medicine in terms of molecular or uh, targeted therapy uh, made its way to, to the topic of today? Well, it's trying to, in terms of fibrotic HP, and trying is the appropriate word. Uh, the problem is that there isn't at this point a simple test that separates fibrotic HP from IPF at the molecular level. In fact, when you go back and read the literature carefully, what's published, which isn't very much, turns out that it lumps, actually lumps these two together <laughs> time. So at the minute, that's not going too far. But people are publishing RNA-seq data 
which potentially might be usable for making this distinction. Uh, the problem with RNA-seq data, as you know, is that we go from lab to lab, you get all sorts of different answers with it from the same process. Yeah. The gene expression becomes very messy that way. But it's, it's getting there. There is a, a, a commercial test available, which in a sense is, is not quite what it says it is because in fact, it doesn't clearly se uh, separate fibrotic HP from from IPF. In fact, it doesn't really uh, separate these from some connective tissue disease either, but it's getting there. And I think that given a little bit of time, we may see something that will be, be helpful. Yeah. And, and, and I'm, I'm very supportive of, of that endeavor, but like, uh, like Andy has mentioned here that the commercially available molecular test, which is done on transbronchial biopsy specimens, um, is really just correlating those, uh, those uh, molecular abnormalities or molecular changes with what is eventually seen as UIP on the biopsy, irregardless of why that advanced pulmonary fibrosis is there. So like Andy says, that is saying you have advanced fibrosis, which many people would say, well, doesn't the CT scan tell you that anyways in the, <laughs> in the first place, right? Exactly. So, but if I could just make one more comment, I do, I do think that there is um, uh, uh, perhaps outside of the molecular field, but I do think there are changes on the horizon in pathology with digitizing uh, whole slide images and digital pathology. And I do think that we are going to see some opportunities open up with re regard to not only identifying etiology, but also uh, trying to correlate what we're seeing pathologically under the microscope with perhaps response to immunosuppression, with perhaps response to antifibrotics. Uh, one might postulate that a case that has a lot of fibroblast focus activity might be more likely to respond to an antifibrotic agent than one that doesn't. And so agents that are expensive and have a high side effect profile, uh, it might be nice to be able to tell patients they're more or less likely to respond based on based on biopsy results. So I do think there's opportunities uh, uh, outside of just the molecular level. So digital path as a predictive, as a, a predictive therapeutic right. response tool. Right. Uh, that will be that would be awesome. Uh, as, as we tell our fellows and residents, you know, uh, digital path between computational digital pathology and molecular, uh, these are the things we have to be very versed in. They have to be. It's probably too late for some yeah. of us uh, if, if they want to continue to lead and, and continue to be relevant. This has been very enjoyable. And uh, before I finish, any of you, any other comment? Uh, Andrew, anything else you want to say? Other than that, it was fun to do the lecture, and thank you for the invitation. Thank you. Yeah, likewise, I'll just second that. It was a great opportunity to be involved with USCAP uh, and Modern Path, and uh, thank you very much. So uh, I know, Andrew, you're writing uh, a manuscript, so Max, you will do the same. Yep. So for our audience, be in the lookup. These will be, I'm sure, uh, highly cited and very informative uh, to all of us. So I can't wait uh, to read those articles. It's been an honor and, uh, and a pleasure to have you both. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll see you again on another uh, podcast in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of Modern Pathology, Springer Nature, UAB, or USCAP. Your ModPath chat host and scientific director is Dr. George Netto. 
producers are Christina Crow, Amber Jackson, Dr. Sarah Jang, and Dr. Catherine Ketchum. Technical direction is provided by Kaminsky Productions, music by Mitch Neubauer. Thanks to the authors, reviewers, and editors of Modern Pathology for making this podcast possible.